Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Let's set the scene. It's the mid-1600s. You live in Hamburg, Germany, and your neighbor has just come over looking to borrow a little flour. Sorry, sorry, not flour. Uh, urine. He wants to borrow your urine. Well, not borrow. Uh, he just wants it. Your neighbor, her brand, has been doing this for a while now. You know that he's been asking everyone in the area, not just you. Which, in its own way, is weirdly reassuring. Uh, at least it's not a personal thing. Whatever he's doing with this stuff, it seems to have something to do with the makeshift chemistry lab that Brand has built in his basement, where you hear he and his stepson have been boiling buckets of everybody's urine. None of this is doing wonders for anyone's property values. So you ask around, and you find out that Brand is an alchemist, one of those guys who's obsessed with trying to make gold out of stuff that is not gold. Alchemy is a bit of a tricky thing on account of how, well, it doesn't actually work. Of course, nobody knows that yet. Right now, everybody's doing it. And Brand is married to a rich lady, he's got money, he's got time, and he's got about 1,500 gallons of liquid gold in the basement. He's going to boil that stuff down and scoop up all the profit that's left behind. The smell in the building, it's not great. I mean, none of this seems great, really. But the thing is, and let's be clear, neither you nor Brand know this, your neighbor is about to inadvertently stumble onto an element on which all human life is dependent. Without it, large-scale farming would be much more difficult, if not impossible. Because the stuff that's lining the bottom of the beaker, when Brand boils away all that piss, turns out not to be gold, but something else entirely. Completely by accident, Brand has discovered phosphorus. I'm Omar Lackhead, and this is Without. Since Brand discovered phosphorus some 450 years ago, it has become a central part of modern life. A natural resource that fuels colonial empires, changes the way we all live, and in the process, wreaks havoc on the environment. We've gone from not knowing it exists to wasting countless tons of it. And were we ever to run out, hundreds of millions of people would likely starve to death. On today's episode, the story of phosphorus, the most important natural resource almost nobody thinks about. Let's jump forward a few hundred years from Henning Brand's makeshift chemistry lab, all the way to 2010, and a party in Oregon. It's a very Oregon kind of party. Laid back, there's this alt-country band playing. I was in a band, and my band was playing at a party, and I was talking with a friend after the show who was a farmer, and we were, like, eating some food. He just, like, casually mentioned, like, hey, do you know that all the food we eat contains mined rock phosphorus, and also we're running out of it, and we're all going to starve? And I was like, no, I did not know that. <laughs> I was like, how do I not know this? Like, this is a geologically relevant piece of information. It's not most people's idea of small talk, but then again, at the time, Julia was getting her master's in geology. 
Nobody's ever thought about phosphorus and it, there's very little awareness that it's kind of a global crisis that affects everyone <laughs> and that it's super important to the history of life and why we're here. That's not hyperbole. It's just the most overlooked element. If we really didn't have it, we couldn't eat. I mean, there's no, you can't grow plants and you can't synthesize proteins in your body and you can't have DNA and you can't have RNA and you can't have bones and you can't have teeth and shells. I mean, you can't have life without phosphorus. Julia Rosen goes on to become a journalist and even reports on the last days of phosphorus. Around the same time she's writing her articles, I was also starting to look at the element. My wife's a chemistry professor and she'd mentioned it in passing once. And I kind of became obsessed with this thing that's so vital to human life, but gets so little attention. It's not so much that we're going to run out of this stuff in the near future. Hardly anyone thinks that. But more about how much of it we're wasting. But almost everyone I talked to about phosphorus, from journalists to academics, didn't seem all that concerned. So I reached out to the farmer who warned Julia about phosphorus. Hello, this is Levi. The guy who sent her down the rabbit hole in the first place. I was a graduate student in horticulture at Oregon State. And, you know, I heard of this seminar. They had free pizza. And I thought, oh, that's great. I'll go for free pizza, whatever they're talking about. If it happened to be this German scientist, he said, look, we, um, we have phosphorus that we're mining from places like Morocco and from China. And those mines are going to run out of phosphorus a lot sooner than we think. I left feeling just like, I've got to sound the alarm. Uh, that was kind of my opening the doors to this black box that uh, eventually started ranting and raving about for years. <laughs> but you can only scream the end is near for so long. When you reach enough apathetic ears, you kind of get tired of trying to sound alarm that no one cares about. I just realized that maybe in light of all the other issues in the world, this isn't one to be screaming and yelling about, but um, the problem's still there. He did find a solution, though. You know, I solved the problem by just not going to parties anymore. I rant and rave about uh, my children. And uh, when you're ranting and raving about things that are, uh, you know, world-ending catastrophes, it's, uh, it's a lot harder when you have two young kids. But it's not impossible. So let's give it a try. What Levi is worried about isn't far-fetched. We may not be running out of phosphorus tomorrow, but we are overusing it right now. So what can we do to make our use of phosphorus more efficient? That's what we'll be looking at in the first part of this episode. In the second part, we'll visit a place that, more than anywhere else in the world, shows the consequences of our insatiable thirst for phosphorus. A tiny island nation whose entire existence has been forever changed by this element and what people are willing to do for it. In a sense, the story of phosphorus is a story of what happens to human beings when we stumble onto a natural resource that makes our lives easier. We overuse it, and then we tear the planet apart looking for more. But before we get into any of that, let's go back to Julia and where that first conversation about phosphorus took her. How did life start if it needed phosphorus? Why did life make phosphorus one of the most fundamental elements in organisms? Tell me a little bit more about sort of early life relationship or the early life sort of usage of, of phosphorus. Yeah, well, everything involving early Earth is really, you know, hard to figure out. Obviously, no one was there to record the introduction of the elements that made life possible. 
Some scientists assume phosphorus arrived on some crash-landing meteorites around 4 billion years ago. Then there's a recent theory that phosphorus was a byproduct of intense lightning storms. Nobody knows if that's exactly what happened, but it does seem like something weird happened to phosphorus at that time. And we know that that's when oxygen levels jumped up and complex life showed up and, you know, the rest is history. At some point, we figured out that having this stuff in the soil helps increase farming yields. And when there wasn't enough phosphorus in the soil, farmers would rely on manure, which contains phosphorus. But that only gets you so far. We sort of ran into this limitation, like there just wasn't enough phosphorus to grow enough food um, to support a growing population. And so we figured out, as we tend to do, ways to get more phosphorus than what was sort of naturally available to us. And we did that through mining. Our world now lives on phosphate mining, as phosphate is a core ingredient of fertilizer, which we use to keep food production surging along. But the issue is that there's only so much phosphorus to extract, and it only exists in certain places. I think that this is sort of the classic story of natural resources. Like, we find something, we realize it can make our lives a lot better, we try to get as much of it as we can, and then it's like, oops, you know, we didn't do that so well. While phosphate isn't going anywhere for a while, the effects of its eventual demise do crop up now and again. We kind of got a preview of what might happen if we didn't have enough phosphorus in 2008. Um, It was, you know, the financial crisis, there was a lot of chaos. And part of that chaos was um, an 800% increase in the price of phosphate rock. In Haiti, um, people were, you know, blocking streets. They had UN peacekeepers there doing crowd control. They stormed the presidential palace. People were smashing windows they started recognizing it as like, this is a critical mineral that we need to make sure we have access to. I think it also really galvanized efforts to increase phosphorus recycling because people realized like, yeah, we we just have a finite supply of this. People have been afraid enough that they've gone to extraordinary lengths to make sure we have enough phosphorus. So what are we looking at? Okay, so this piece of equipment is called our mobile struvite uh, system, and it's uh, built on a trailer about 20 feet long. The cone itself, which is where the struvite is formed, and in our case, we're forming it from dairy manure, um, sits on this trailer, and we can tilt this up in about 60 seconds. It's on hydraulics, and then we can tilt it down. Joe Harrison and I are walking around near a bunch of outbuildings at Washington State University. Struvite, the thing Joe keeps referring to, is a crystal formed out of magnesium, ammonium, and phosphate. Or, dumbed down, it's crystallized fertilizer. We wanted to try to form struvite on multiple dairies across the state, both in western Washington as well as eastern Washington. For dairy producers, they want to know how it works on their farm or their neighbor's farm. You know, it becomes much more believable than if it was, uh, you know, done in a research laboratory. Which is a familiar place for Joe, as you might have guessed from his ease with the science of nutrients. Before crystallizing pig droppings, Joe taught at Washington State. What are we sort of looking at right here? So this would be a a finished product type design. We we scaled it uh, where we would run about 5,000 gallons of manure uh, a day through the system. And the phosphorus is a compound that we're really trying to, to capture when we use this system. 
do get weird looks from people who who don't know what this is and they see it driving around or they see it in place sort of doing what it does oh sure this is a you know it's a, a really a, a relatively new technology joe's working at the meeting place between science and commerce because that phosphorus runoff he's trying to recycle isn't just an environmental issue it's also worth a lot of money Often the phosphate from farms goes unused, and when it runs into riverbeds, it can cause what's called algae blooms in the neighboring bodies of water. The blooms do a lot of terrible things, but perhaps the worst of these is that they suck the oxygen out of the water and prevent light from getting in, killing the marine life below. So you end up with what are called dead zones, a bit like sand mining. But if you can capture that phosphate before it gets into the water, you can turn it into valuable, high-grade fertilizer, with the right equipment. This, what's called a fluidized bed uh, system, is used in wastewater treatment plants all around the world to capture phosphorus from human waste. It's, it's not a new um, you know, science or technology in the sense of knowing how to do this, but it's new in the sense of trying to look at agriculture and help agriculture uh, be part of a sustainable solution for, for phosphorus availability. And as far as cutting-edge engineering solutions go, the way this one works sounds pretty straightforward. Manure goes in, fertilizer comes out. We are running it at about five gallons a minute, and what the material does is it goes into the bottom of the cone, and it flows up. We get this swirling bed action, mm-hmm. and it, it just looks like sand swirling around in, in water. Once we've let a lot of liquid drain out, then we'll go ahead and let the whole slurry that's in the cone drain out, air dry it, and it's actually ready to use on the farm at that point. And while that farm might feed 10, 20, 100,000 homes, Joe knows the issue of recycling phosphorus doesn't end with a few machines or piles of cow dung. Everybody around the world uh, is looking for ways to recycle phosphorus. Rather than wasting the material and letting it build up somewhere, And the idea is to capture it and recycle it. Humans are the ones that are kind of at the end of the food chain in this regard. And and, um, if we want to eat, we're going to need to be part of the solution. But even if every farm had a struvite machine to clean things up, there's only so much efficiency you can wring out of any operation. One expert we interviewed said that if we were really thorough and processed all our human waste, we'd only recuperate about 10% of the phosphorus we take in. In other words, our relationship with recycling phosphorus is about as effective as our relationship with recycling plastic. It's a work in progress. Still, it's something. After the break, a trip alongside an explorer the richest nation in the world, and a refugee camp. The story of the most important element most of us have never heard of goes through a tiny island equally unknown. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast, where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness 
knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Humans are usually pretty great at memorializing positive starts. Inventions, successes, times when things went right. But it's rare to mark the beginning of a disappearance. I think that's because it can be hard to notice at first. There's often a big gap between when something starts to go away and when we feel the effect. In the back half of today's episode, we have a rare opportunity, an account of the start of a disappearance, penned by the person responsible for it. The chronicle of a vanishing island just eight square miles, preserved in the diary of an Australian phosphate prospector, Albert Ellis. The tiny island Ellis steadily chipped away at is called Nauru, and it wasn't deserted, though the people who called it home had been taken advantage of by one foreign power or another for centuries. But unlike the Germans, who seized the island long before any phosphate prospector showed up, or the Japanese who invaded during World War II, Ellis's exploitation gained Nauru an unlikely independence. By 1980, after decades of lucrative phosphate mining, the New York Times reported Nauru to be the richest country in the world per capita. Though, this probably isn't the Nauru you've heard of. For the last two decades, Nauru has been reported on not for its phosphorus, but because it's home to a sprawling immigration detention center, where refugees from places such as Myanmar and Iran are stuck, often for years at a time. It's left many Nauruans hesitant to speak to foreign reporters. It's quite easy to pick on Nauru because, uh, you know, a lot of the stories and headlines are not very flattering at all. Some of the writers about Nauru have got a specific angle when they come in. And um, unfortunately for Nauru, most of the angles have been quite negative. This is Matthew Batsuia. Matthew grew up at the height of Nauru's phosphate wealth. And what you're going to hear is his story. Seventy years before Matthew was born... Albert Ellis first arrived in Nauru, marking the beginning of a decades-long stretch of colonial exploitation. Interspersed with Matthew's story, you'll also hear snippets of Ellis's own diaries, his early recollections that form a kind of false history of the place. There are places where Matthew and Albert's stories converge. There are many where they don't. The Japanese kept all the uh, those who had leprosy in this camp. And um, I had an uncle who was in the camp. And so he was taken in a, in a boat with the other people who had leprosy. And they were, they were taken out on, on a barge. And uh, I think they were shot at or they were, you know, the boat was deliberately sunk. And so they, they, they died. People sort of understood the rationale behind why it was not spoken. Nauru is just too much of a small place for those wounds to be discussed openly. And um, so it was thought and believed by by most that it's best just to try to move on 
you know, we are one island. We're only eight square miles and we have to survive. And in order to survive, um, we sometimes, we just have to bury the past and just forge ahead with, with some sort of ambitions of where you want to go and find peace with that. Ellis, the Australian prospector, doesn't start his story from a place of forgetting, but from a place of obliviousness. Prospecting for phosphate gets into the blood. It can be quite as fascinating as prospecting for gold, with perhaps even more of the element of romance. For does it not bring one into close touch with lonely islands, with their possibility of all sorts of discovery and mysteries? My father, who was a director in the mineral company and who had been looking after the phosphate section of the business in Australia and New Zealand, had gone to England, and I was transferred temporarily to the Sydney office to take his place. On beginning work there, I entered the company lab and noticed a large piece of rock keeping the door open. On remarking to the manager that this piece of rock resembled some phosphate, I was told that it was a specimen found by himself on Pleasant Island, Nauru, about three years previously. It was probably three months later that the thought came to test it. To my great satisfaction, it was phosphate rock of the highest quality, and from the structure of the material one could tell that it was an old and probably extensive deposit. Early in 1900 I left Sydney, bound for Nauru. Do you, do you remember the first time you heard the name Albert Ellis? Yeah, I do, actually. I played Albert Ellis when I was in grade five. I was <laughs> in the end-of-year concert for school. I played the whole thing where I tripped over a doorstop, the crowd laughed, and, uh, and, and I picked it up and I said, oh, this is odd-looking rock. And then I discovered that it was, it was phosphate and it was quite valuable. So I went back to Nauru and I got all the chiefs and all the people together and I told them they're going to be all rich. I said, oh, you're all going to be rich. And that's how the, that's how the play ended. I was trying to be a white guy. I was, I was wearing, uh, wearing khaki shorts and, and, and <laughs> white shirt. <laughs> I didn't really analyse it too, too deeply. I just thought that he was a very important guy in the history of Nauru. Yeah. We believe that it's a, it's a resource that's blessed Nauru with opportunities um, and has enabled our progress as a nation uh, to, to, to develop and go forth. What is the use of phosphate anyway? Yes, what is the use of it? The natives are puzzled over the matter from another angle, and they ask why the white man in his wonderful country needs the rocks and soil from their little island to make his fields fertile. There's no Nauruan word for phosphate. It is phosphate. It's just phosphate. Because Nauruans didn't know, you know, the, the mineral phosphate until it was considered valuable by Western countries. Phosphate enabled and convinced the United Nations that Nauru can become an independent nation standing on its own uh, two feet without any support from other countries. And Nauru was, uh, Nauru was very wealthy when it gained, gained its, its independence. And it was the core reason why Nauru did obtain its independence. A man on the ground supplied me with native guides, three good-natured lusty fellows. However, they could not speak a word of English. We struck across the 400 yards or so of flat sandy country, covered with coconuts. There were numerous hills, 
and from the tops of these, almost as far as the eye could see, stretched a wide expanse of phosphate country. It was the sight of a lifetime in my special line of business. Our education system was very much based on, on Western schooling. There was no history classes. Um, there was no classes on, on culture or Nauruan. And you would get disciplined if, you, if they hear you speaking Nauruan in the school grounds. It was actually part of the government curriculum not to teach Nauruan history. Here was material in scores of millions of tonnes, which would make the desert bloom like a rose, would enable innumerable hard-working farmers to make a living, and would facilitate the production of wheat, butter and meat for hungry millions for the next hundred years to come. One could visualise a great industry springing up from this lonely spot, dwarfing all our previous efforts in mining. On returning to the settlement, our native guides gave the local missionary an account. He told me months after that they described the white man from the ships as being quite mad. A Nauruan name meaning the stone man was given to me there and then. The natives of this island, numbering about 1,400, impressed me very favourably with their pleasant appearance and friendly manners. They were told it had been found that the rocks and soil on their high portion of the island were useful to the white men, and that the company whom we represented would pay them for the phosphate at a stated rate. The chiefs were gravely interested. One of them thought it was hardly the thing for the white men to have to pay for rocks, and another suggested that when they were being removed, we might leave behind sufficient for them to make special stone sinkers that they use for their fishing lines. He must have had some prophetic insight into the white men's thoroughness. When I was a kid, I remember vividly that we would go and play in the forest area at Topside where they hadn't mined yet. Uh, but wow. sadly, sadly, that, that area is um, no longer there. It's just mined out lands now. When did you first hear someone talk about your homeland who wasn't from there? When I went to Tasmania and I uh, went with a friend um, to his home in the country, they have a farm. And so the dad, he asked me, you know, what's the size of Nauru? And uh, I said, oh, it's eight square miles. And he laughed and he said, well, my whole farm is bigger than your island. And um, that just blew my mind. You know, you could have a person that owns a farm that outsizes your, your country three or four times. After college, I came back to Nauru. Most of our professionals were coming from Australia or, or India. Um, so that, I guess that sort of triggered my belief that we need to localise these positions rather than having to depend on, on outside expertise all the time. I think the highest point in my in my professional career would be the first time I got elected. I was 27 and they made me the, the, the chief secretary at that time. So it was quite crazy. After many years, the dream has been realised at Nauru. Nauru being a larger place with much greater deposits of phosphate should rightly be the scene of more extensive exploitation. In, the, in Nauru, there's this tradition we call Papa. It's a, like a cultural tradition where, where on special occasions people will come and, and, and take something from you. So when, when, when I became an MP, 
um, I was still living in my parents' house in the family home. And people just came from far and wide and just basically ransacked the family home, took the car, took my air conditioning, took all my children's clothes, took my wife's clothes, took my TV, took our beds, took everything. Most cultures would would not be ecstatic about people coming to their homes to ransack it, but under certain circumstances, it's you, know, you, you feel the joy with the people coming. Like when they, they when they were taking my bed and taking my clothes and taking my TV and taking my air conditioning, I was ecstatic. I guess I was a bit, you know, drunk as well. But <laughs> <laughs> so the very first parliament session I attended, um, I had borrowed clothes. It felt like we were on the verge of of something very big for the nation because there's this new young politicians, there's 16 of us, like this wave, sort of exciting. At the same time, it was daunting because like when we came in, um, Nauru basically was on the verge of being bankrupt. So the challenge was enormous. I remember receiving my first uh, pay check as a member of parliament and it had Honourable Matthew Batsua, MP, $50. We were in dire straits. When we come back, Nauru after phosphorus, and a visitor without a choice. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see, so... No, that's a good thing. Uh... <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in, hold it. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Welcome back. The windfall years were over. Nauru's phosphorus was all but gone, and by 2001, the island was on the verge of bankruptcy. For nearly 70 years, the country's phosphorus had been mined and sold by foreigners. And it had only been three decades since Nauru gained independence and taken over its own mining industry. And then, seemingly overnight, a new source of potential income presented itself, one for which this tiny island would soon become known worldwide. I remember we just hosted the forum, the Pacific Islands Leaders Forum. That's when the the, the Norwegian ship was floating in the Australian waters with all these refugees that they had rescued. Um, and um, Australia was refusing them to, to offload these refugees. They just rescued us uh, into, into Australia. And that's when John Howard rang our president at that time. Um, 
asked him if Nauru is willing to, to host uh, the um, processing centres to process these refugees. I remember that day because I was just finishing work. I think it was about close to 5pm. Then a phone rang. It was the president's office. The secretary said, oh, sir, are you, are you going home? I said, oh, I'm just backing up. Oh, can you please hang around? The president wants to, to call you about something. About 7 o'clock, the president called. Matthew, have you been watching the news? And I said, yes. How would you feel if they come to Nauru? I said, what? And he said, well, and he said, don't worry, Matthew, they're going to pay everything. They'll pay for everything. I said, oh, okay. What do you want me to do? And he said, can you, uh, camera's going to call you. Can you ask them all the questions that we need to ask and then prepare a briefing for cabinet for tonight? <laughs> and, and I didn't even know what to ask. I mean, I was, all this was foreign. It was foreign to me. I didn't, I didn't know what to ask. I didn't know what refugees are about. You know, what's the, what does the process involve? We were just sitting there dumbfounded. So when the call came in, I said, if they come to Nauru, how long will the processing take? Because I, I don't know anything about processing refugees. Nauru does, don't have the capacity. Nauru don't have the expertise. So how long will it take for one refugee to be processed? And they said, oh, about three to four months. <laughs> three to four months. <laughs> they said that in 2009, three to four months. But I knew the decision was already made. Three, four, three to four months turned into six to eight years. Because the, the president at that time, Rene Harris, was in a diabetic coma. And that's why I was running the show on, on, the, on the ground. It was very tense. Was there an option for you to say no? At that time, Nauru was in a very uh, precarious uh, economic situation because, and that's why I think Australia also made the approach because they just came to the forum in Nauru. You know, Nauru was, was struggling to, to, to host the forum. <clears throat> they probably see it as an opportunity to, to help Nauru, but also to help themselves. It's always been known uh, that phosphate is a finite resource. It will run out. Uh, even now we've discovered secondary phosphate and it's estimated to run between 25 to 40 years. We are hoping that Nauru will last beyond 40 years. So we can't depend on phosphate, whether or not secondary, primary, whatever. We just can't rely on the one resource. I always say this to people when they ask me about the future of Nauru. I said it's a, it's a bit of a contradiction, Nauru, because you're talking about a big problem, like nation building. And, but you're talking about a, a nation of, of 10,000 people. So the problem is big, but it's also small. After decades of colonial extraction, the island was handed one more poisoned economic lifeline. A contract to manage boatloads of refugees headed to Australia. Refugees the Australian government wanted nothing to do with. Suddenly, Nauru became the public face of one of the 21st century's defining stories, the global refugee crisis. In a poorly equipped camp near the southern edge of the island, a growing number of refugees from places like Myanmar found themselves stranded for years at a time. Hello, yes? More than a century after the first agent of empire arrived here, 
a new kind of visitor had come to Nauru, in many ways both the inverse and logical extension of those first colonial incursions. The world doesn't know about it. In Myanmar, they kept us everything away from uh, basic, basic human rights. Like, uh, they don't let us any visa to go outside. I left Myanmar in 2008. I wanted to, you know, go to Australia. We thought it was going to be go in Australia, and then they're going to give us a good opportunity. But it's never happened. We never imagined that we're going to be end up in Nauru or something. This is Nauru Alam, a Rohingya refugee who first arrived in Nauru in 2013. It was a place he knew nothing about, including when he'd ever be allowed to leave. No, no, no. They didn't tell us about you're gonna, how long it's going to take. You know, they, they, they just tell us we're going to find a third country and we'll send you to third country. That's it. In a cramped internment camp, the refugees waited. The days bled one into the next. There was uh, no future, you know. When we see, like, in the, okay, when, uh, like, and when we, um, in the morning, we, as example, we have a, in the breakfast in the morning, we have a, something uh, to expect in the evening, we have to have a dinner. But in the, in the, in the now, we don't have any expectations. So, like, you know, when we just, in the future, there's nothing. And then, without explanation or warning, Narul was suddenly allowed to see the island in which he'd been held for so long. After, after three years, they released us in uh, Narul outside from the camp. Then we find out they don't have a lot of things in the in island because everything comes from Australia. They don't have nothing. They don't have nothing in there. Even, even rice, even anything, they they just need, they just did business with Australia. That's it. They 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 did they did nothing wrong with it. Do you remember the the day you left Nauru? Yes, 2018, August 27. They said, okay, if you guys like, you guys can go to USA. You know, it's uh, five years is too much. You know, we had to go somewhere. But what we can do? That's the religious life. I'm not angry for the Australian. I don't know what's going to happen if I blend them, nothing. In a life, if something happens, doesn't mean you have to stop or something. You have to keep moving, you know. If something stops you, it's okay. Just stop for the break, and then you have to move for the next move. It's been about 20 years since the refugee detention camps first opened in Nauru, and almost a century since the first Westerners stumbled onto the island's phosphorus deposits. In a way, the two industries that grew out of those moments act as bookends for the era of colonialism and capitalism that birthed them. In this tiny place, generations of Nauruans have seen the slow, destructive arc of extraction. From insatiable mining, to wild overuse, to the detention of refugees whose plight, over the coming decades, is going to be largely driven by extraction-fueled climate change. It's not just the story of phosphorus, it's the story of the Anthropocene of what the world has become. Life in the U.S. hasn't been easy for Narul. It's a country filled with bureaucracy, and it's not always clear how to jump through all the administrative hoops. It was barely a year after he arrived that most of the country went into lockdown, COVID. But that lockdown is trivial compared to what he's seen, because here, at least there's a chance for a future. After I get here, thank God I got married. I have a beautiful wife. When we called Narul, his wife decided she didn't want to listen in on the conversation. 
And hey, I get it. Maybe it's a work call. You know, she wants to give him some space. Anyhow, she went to a different room. But it seems like wherever you go, you just can't get away from phosphorus. She just got uh, got one where I started talking to you guys. She just left and then... (laughs) She just was doing something in the kitchen. So I don't know what she cooked. She cooked for, for us. <laughs> Thanks, Neural. You're welcome. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar Alakad. It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. Our senior producer is Emil Klein. Our producer is Lashik Lotus-Lee. And our associate producer is Fendel Fulton. With additional reporting from Jordan Allen and production support from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Katcher at Nice Manners. And our research is by Sarah Mathis and Zoe Gruskin. Steve Sibley voiced an adapted text from Albert Ellis's 1935 book, Ocean Island and Nauru, their story. Our field recordings of Nauru come courtesy of Todd Mark. We featured music from Julia Rosen's band, Psych Country Review. And this episode would not have been possible without the help of Martin Mackenzie Murray at the Saturday Paper and the Ads Up Refugee Network. Thanks to the many others who helped us put this episode together. You know who you are. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more next week. Is there anything I should have asked you or anything you want to add? Just to be fun, I'll throw out one piece of trivia for you guys to end with. Um, If you have a copy of The Lorax, Dr. Seuss's most famous book, perhaps, if you have a copy of it from the 70s, there's a mention of Lake Erie in there. If you have a copy of it from post-1986, there's no mention of Lake Erie. That's because of phosphorus. What happened was um, there were these tightening controls on phosphorus detergents you know, laundry detergent. And they said, we can't keep releasing this phosphorus in the environment because it's polluting the lakes. So they tightened the controls. Lake Erie cleaned up. And then some students from Ohio State wrote Dr. Seuss and said, hey, we've cleaned up Lake Erie. You really should have trash talking the Lorax. And he actually went to the length of pulling the mention of Lake Erie out of the book. So if you have a newer version of the Lorax, it doesn't mention Erie. And that's all because of phosphorus. That might be the best piece of trivia I've ever heard. <laughs>